My name is Rick Gerhardt. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and Pete called me yesterday, or texted me yesterday to ask me if I'd uh, preach this morning. So he was, he was in urgent care uh, with a high fever and uh, um, trying to figure out what's going on there. So, uh, so this is kind of a last minute deal for me. And the only reason I'm going to use that as an excuse is because I don't know whether it's going to take me 90 minutes or 120 minutes to share with you what I've got to say. Um, so we're in a series on the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. And uh, if you've been with us, we've, we've gone from just after Easter, the resurrection, uh, up until now, and uh, we've been putting down here and there, not in any real uh, chronological order, uh, but, but just looking at the lives and the deaths of, uh, of the disciples of Jesus after uh, they witnessed the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, Pete asked me if I'd kind of give an apologetics slant to the Acts of the Apostles, and that's because that's what I do is apologetics. Um, and if you don't understand that, apologetics is just a, a, a rational and reasoned defense of the truth of the Christian world and life view. Um, so I'm going to try to do that today, just talk about the resurrection in particular uh, and, and give a, a historical set of reasons why we should believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Um, my only other goal for today is not to say anything controversial. Uh, as you've heard, Ken's been on a whirlwind preaching tour in Asia and, and getting back to uh, kind of a book deadline. So he's going to have a busy week and, and Pete's under the weather. So I just want to make sure that there's no nasty emails calling into question the heresy of something I might have said this time. Um, that's not always the case. Usually when I get to preach, they, they let me preach on uh, controversial subjects. So I'll, I'll try to avoid those. And, uh, and I think you'll be good with everything I have to say today. Um, so let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get started in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, dear Father God, um, we come before you to worship you and give you praise this morning. In part because... Your son Jesus died on the cross as payment for our sins, that we might have relationship with you, forgiveness of sins, and, and abundant life. But if, if that were the whole story, then uh, we wouldn't be here today. Because really what, what makes it a, a story worth living and dying for is that you raised him from the dead, that he's alive and with us at this moment. And so again, we give you the praise and the glory. As we look into this resurrection, we just pray that you would uh, open our eyes and our minds to, to new truths about it and about how it affects our lives and deaths. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage uh, that we've touched down upon. Both Pete and Ken have gone to it uh, uh, once or twice in, in this, this series. I think we have it up on the board. Um, in this short section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, in three different ways, basically says that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead bodily, then our faith is worthless, our teaching is worthless, uh, and, and we of all folks are to be pitied for believing it, okay? Um, Keep your finger here or, or keep this part of your Bible app open because we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but the point is that resurrection is at the heart of what Christians believe. Um, I, th I think that's a fairly non-controversial statement. Uh, what, what is it that you Christians believe? Well, we, we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's central to... Uh, the history of the church, it's, it's actually central to the history of God's people because uh, if, if we look at the Old Testament prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, what we find is that the sacraments, the celebrations that the Israelites, uh, that God instituted among the Israelites were pointing forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as we look at church history, um, we understand that the birth of the church, what we've been reading about in Acts, has as its basis the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. 
the sacraments of the church that we still participate in today, communion and the Lord's Supper, are both looking back at the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Um, the fact that we come together to worship on Sunday has its basis in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Uh, it, it appears in our reading of uh, Luke and the, the Acts of the Apostles that most of Jesus' appearances to the disciples occurred on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath day. Um, and he ascended into heaven on a Sunday. And so very quickly among a group of Jewish men who, had, who, who were the products of many, many, many generations of worshiping God, setting aside a day of worship for God on the last day of the week, Saturday, the Sabbath, they quickly moved toward also meeting on the first day of the week to talk about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and what it meant for their lives. So, so these are just some of the ways in which it's pretty obvious to, to Christians and, and to non-Christians alike that at the center of church history, at the center of things for the people of God is this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, but what about other folks? Um, you know, we live now in a post-Christian culture, one in which many of our coworkers and neighbors and even family don't believe in the resurrection. Um, what does the resurrection have to say for them? Does it matter to the rest of the world? Sure, it's, it's part of, of what we Christians believe. And, and so here's where we, we need to understand in our very postmodern world that there's only a couple of options here. Either Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead, as we believe, or he did not. Okay, it's, it's, it's not true for us because we're Christians, but untrue for those who, who don't accept it. Either he did or he didn't. And so what I want to do today is, is, is take a, a more historical scholarly look at the events in question and see if there's reason to believe it, even if a person hasn't actually experienced God's presence in their own life, okay? So I'm trusting that most of us here know full well in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus rose from the dead because we've, we've actually encountered him. We've, we've seen him at work in our lives. He answers our prayers and, and those sorts of things. But what can we say to those who haven't had that experience? Okay, that, that's kind of where we're gonna um, go today. Uh, we do live in a, in a post-Christian culture that has a, a relatively high view of science. Um, Modern science has, has done a lot of wonders in improving our comfort and, and eradicating certain diseases and, and all of our technology and all. And, and so we, we value science highly. And it was about 100 years ago, a little more, that science turned in a direction that, that we'll call naturalism. Um, naturalism is just the, the denial of the supernatural or of immaterial things like minds and souls, and certainly uh, of things like angels and, and God. So within the church uh, 120 years ago, there was a movement to, to kind of reread the scriptures and get rid of these claims of supernatural, claims of deity and claims of miracles, including, of course, the miracle of resurrection. So at that time, uh, skeptical scholars looking at the Acts of the Apostles or, or the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection came up with alternate theories to explain what the disciples went through, what these, these guys who, who were reading about in the Acts, they obviously experienced something, but we, we know that people don't rise from the dead, right? We live in a scientific age. Um, it turns out that uh, science doesn't do anything to disprove the possibility of, of miracle, like resurrection. Uh, the, the more we understand the world in terms of physical laws, scientific laws, it really does nothing to explain where those laws came from. In fact, the, the need for an, a transcendent lawgiver is greater than ever as we, we discover the, the, the 
limit to what we can discover scientifically. Even as we've now proven that the universe had a beginning, has not been here forever just as a, a brute fact, it, it gives us more need for an explanation for the beginner. Not only the be beginner of the universe, but the, but the lawgiver, the one, who, the one who put the law of gravity and the law of thermodynamics into place, okay? Um, so we're gonna look at a few alternate theories that the naturalists of 100 years ago came up with for, for what it was that these, uh, these disciples experienced. Because obviously something went on. Um, this Jesus must have been so charismatic that uh, he impressed people. People who met him, encountered him, went on to, to become transformed and do different things. But because we know that people don't rise from the dead, we need another explanation for what happened. And so one of the most popular alternate theories was the legend theory. That, that these people who had been transformed somehow by this charismatic teacher Years and, and generations later, they started to imbue his life with these legendary, miraculous things. And, and that's what's going on there. So this, this is just one of the alternate naturalistic theories that we want to talk about. Um, so I want to bring up uh, a person named uh, Sir Lionel Lucku, because he, he was a guy who wanted to examine the evidence for the resurrection critically, and, and he did it from, a, from an unbelieving perspective. And Sir Lionel Luck, who is the most successful attorney in history, and he acted as the defense attorney, primarily in murder cases. So he was, he was supposed to discover flaws in the evidence that would exonerate his, his client, right? And Sir Lionel Luck, who succeeded one 245 consecutive murder trials. Got, got his defendant off of the charge. So if anybody was qualified to find holes in the evidence for the resurrection, it was Sir Lionel Lucku. And at the end of his, uh, his, end of his research, um, he's got a quote coming up here. Sir Lionel Lucku said, his conclusion was, if Christ, no, that's not it. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves no room for doubt. So he started as an unbeliever, very good at finding holes in evidence and, and came to the conclusion against his will that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Um, so one more thing before I get into to some of this argument. Um, there, there's a belief among the church today that, that we should, that our faith is somehow better if we don't have evidence and fact and reason on our side. So it's partly the naturalists of 100 years ago who, who began to say, we scientists have proof and experiment. You religious folks simply have blind faith. And, and you tell somebody that long enough, there's a section of the, the church who've come to believe that somehow blind faith is what we have and that somehow that's more spiritual than, than faith that rests on reason and facts and things. And, and for folks like that, the, uh, the, the, scripture, the, the text scripture passage would be one that comes towards the end of uh, the Gospel of John. Remember, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, uh, on numerous occasions, apparently um, Thomas was not with the others. And so there came a point at which the others had seen Jesus and, and Thomas had not and didn't believe their account of having seen him. And, and remember Thomas, who, who came to be called the doubting apostle, doubting Thomas, is, is to have said, unless I see him and, and touch the scars, then I won't believe, right? You're all with me on that, right? And so there comes a time when Jesus does uh, confront Thomas and, and Thomas comes to believe because he sees Jesus and Jesus says, have you believed Thomas because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And so some Christians interpret that as saying, oh, so my faith is more spiritual if, if I don't have reasons or evidence uh, 
on which I base that faith, right? Now, I know that that's a misinterpretation of what the gospel writer John was trying to say there. And the reason I know that is because the very next verses in chapter 21, I think it is, uh, indicate John's reason for writing his gospel. Uh, these are the very next verses after the account of Jesus' encounter with Thomas. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs and miracles and evidences are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we talk about evidence and reason, historical reason for believing in the resurrection, understand that it, it, it doesn't undermine your faith because there's really reason and evidence uh, behind it all, okay? Um, so as, as we look to the issue of did, what really occurred uh, at, at Easter, uh, there's a lot of evidences that require explanation. Whether the explanation is legend or, or one of these other naturalistic hypotheses, or whether the true explanation is that Jesus really rose from the dead, there's a whole lot of evidence that needs explanation. And, and the first set of evidence would be just what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, the, the lives and the deaths of Jesus' disciples. Um, why did they behave the way they did after the crucifixion? Um, and, and, and let's think about that a minute. Um, right after the crucifixion, Jesus' closest disciples were scared, uh, despairing. They'd lost all hope. They, they thought Jesus was going to usher in this powerful military kingdom or, or whatever. And yet here he was, not only dead, but dead by the most humiliating form of, of execution possible. And, and they thought that folks would be coming for them next. Um, these are uneducated teenagers, Jesus' closest, the, the disciples into whom Jesus poured his life. Um, they're, they're members of a very small nation which has itself been conquered by the powerful Roman Empire, right? Uh, the likelihood of this movement going anywhere at this point is, is really, really low. Even, even if we read all the way through the book of Acts, where does that leave us? It leaves us with Paul in prison, most of the others dead, some of them by crucifixion, others by other uh, forms of uh, punishment. Uh, John is still alive, but has kind of faded from the picture. Uh, the Romans are still in control. Not only the Romans, but these disciples' own people, the Jews, are all opposed to this new movement. So even by the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you know, winning money is not on the Jesus way, right? And yet, from our perspective 2,000 years later, the great Roman Empire is long dead, um, and Christianity has spread throughout the world, largely by peaceful means, the, the conquest of the Americas being kind of the real exception, um, taking with it the, the descendants of these disciples, taking with them literacy and hospitals, establishing universities and orphanages and, and teaching people to read, um, establishing democracies and, and promoting justice around the globe. We now uh, name our children, our, our sons, after these uneducated teenagers, John and Paul and James. And we name our dogs and cats after the Roman emperors of that time, Nero and Caesar. Do you understand how unlikely this is? It needs to be accounted for. Um, so I started by saying that, that the resurrection is at the heart of church history. What I want to say here is that it's also the most important event in all of human history. For, for some of the reasons I've just mentioned, but, but for other reasons as well. Um, all of the Western world dates, it sets its calendar based around the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Um, we, 
we actually have words in our language that reflect the centrality of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, so we have words for importance and centrality like crux and crucial, which have the same Latin root as the word crucifixion. So it's actually redundant if I were to tell you that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the crucial event of all human history. You, you see what I'm saying there? Um, Time Magazine from time to time comes out with a, a hundred, 100 most influential people to have ever lived. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth invariably is number one on that list. And usually 30 or more of the other 100 most influential people in all of human history are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter and Paul and church fathers like Augustine and Aquinas, uh, Pope John Paul II and the reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, artists and composers and authors like Michelangelo and Bach and Dante. All of these are considered to be among the 100 most influential people in all of human history. Also on that list are important founders and, and some of the earliest modern scientists, people like Francis Bacon and Michael Faraday and Isaac Newton, who were Christian men and who, did, who, who thought science was a worthwhile thing because they knew the creator and they knew that human beings were created in his image. So it, it turns out that one of the things that needs explaining is even the birth of modern science. Modern science was born from a specifically Christian worldview by men who understood from their Bibles that God is real, that God created us in his image, and therefore wants us to discover things about the world that he created. So it's kind of ironic that the the scientific enterprise that birthed this naturalistic bent a hundred years ago that called into question the truth of, of Christian claims actually is, is, is only worthwhile because the Christian claims are true in the first place. Um, I, I could go on a, a very long uh, tangent there, but I'll, I'll spare you from that. Um, so the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the central event, not only in all of church history, but in all of human history. So what really went on there? So there's a number of different ways of defending the, the historical truth of, of the resurrection. One would be to just prove, the, prove that the Bible itself is the word of God through the use of fulfilled prophecies and historical and scientific accuracy of the claims of the Bibles. But we're not gonna do that this morning. What I wanna share with you is called the minimal facts argument. And it was produced by uh, philosopher Gary Habermas. He's the, uh, the, head, the head of the philosophy department at Liberty University and, and not only a philosopher, but, uh, but one of the recognized experts on the resurrection, his historian, I guess you'd, you'd call him. Um, and he came up with this argument in a way of interacting with skeptical uh, historians on this issue of, of what occurred at the time of the first Easter. So uh, let me talk for a minute about the sorts of New Testament scholarships that, that Habermas had in view here. So because the Bible is not only the, the highest selling but the most popular and the most important book in all of human history, there are a lot of folks whose careers are as New Testament scholars, even if they don't accept the, the truth claims of the New Testament. So imagine that this auditorium is filled with folks that are New Testament scholars. Um, about the first 30% would be Christians who accept the Bible as the word of God and, and believe it to be completely reliable and, and free of error and that sort of thing. But most of the rest of the auditorium would be filled with people who have a, a range of where they land on that issue and, and don't fully accept the Bible as, as the inerrant word of God. Um, so, so all of the rest of you would be skeptics of some sort or another. Um, 
many of, many of those folks would, would deny the possibility of resurrection or other miracles recorded in Scripture. Um, but Habermas's minimal facts argument is going to address those folks, except for that last row up there. The, the folks in the very top row, they're, they're so skeptical that they don't accept any historical fact. And, and nobody can reach them. And all these other skeptics here don't give a hoot about them either because they're just too far out skeptical to, to be worth talking to, right? Okay? So, so Habermas's argument, the minimal facts argument, identifies 12 historical facts that everybody in the room believer and skeptic agrees to with the possible exception of the back row up there, right? Um, and these facts, uh, each one of these facts provides multiple reasons for these skeptics to accept it. And so the vast majority of this auditorium accepts each one of these facts. And then we're, after I delineate the facts, we're gonna um, talk about um, why, they, why they provide the conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he wasn't a legend or, or one of these other ideas. Before I list the facts, though, I want to bring up, because you still have your finger in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to talk about the uh, first section of 1 Corinthians 15, because this is kind of the basis for, for some of these facts and, and partly why the skeptics accept these facts. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, we won't spend a lot of time talking about it, but, but for, the, for this room today, if, 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 if this group of New Testament scholars were in this auditorium today, for most of the skeptics, the gospel writers are out, partly because they're so clear about miracle and, and things like that, but Paul is in. So, so this comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and, and most of the skeptics are, you know, leaning into Paul a little more than they would the Gospel of John, which is so clear in its high Christology. Um, so at this point in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And that's an introduction to this next little section, which all New Testament scholars accept as an early Christian creed. So this next little section is really a, a quote on Paul's part. It's not original to him. He's quoting a little creed of what it is he received and, and has taught them. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Next slide, please. <clears throat> then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of, and, and that's the end of the creed, and then he adds on the end, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, there's, there's several reasons why New Testament scholars take this to be a creed. Some of the words used are not typical of Paul's writing. Um, the fact that he used the Aramaic name for Peter, Cephas, is not typical of what Paul would do. Some of the, just the parallelism is more Hebraic and, and not something Paul would have written in a letter. So, so there's a variety of reasons why we take this to be a creed. So, so let's talk about the timing of, of this. Um, New Testament scholars, again, across the spectrum of religious belief, accept that the writing of 1 Corinthians occurred between 54 and 57, AD 54 and 57. So at most, that would be 27 years after the events of, of the crucifixion and, and whatever went on that weekend, right? Uh, but Paul, Paul tells them that when he visited them, so verse, verse one of chapter 15 says, I came to you and preached. And we know both from the, from the book of Acts and from extra biblical sources that Paul came to Corinth in AD 51. 
Um, one of the extra biblical evidences for that is that Acts 18 mentions that the proconsul at the time of his visit to Corinth was a guy named Galileo. And you can actually find an inscription if you go to the museum in Delphi, Greece today, a stone inscription of Galileo, and we can date his reign in that region and know that we, we, we have firm reason for thinking that Paul visited and began preaching to the Corinthians in AD 51. But he told us here in this passage that we read that what he preached to them was delivered to him prior to that. Now, the fact that this is a creed already tells us that it's older than the date of the writing of this letter, right? So, so we're back to at least 51 uh, AD, which is getting us nearer to the resurrection and, and the crucifixion. Um, but most New Testament scholars would say that, that where Jesus, where, where Paul was given this teaching was when he visited with James and Peter in AD 35 in Jerusalem. So now we're all the way back to within five years of the events in question. The point being that this is not a legend that's arisen uh, generations or decades after the facts. We can actually trace historic, using normal traditional historical means, we can trace this teaching, this proclamation of the resurrection, all the way back to within five, and probably more likely two to three years of the events in question, okay? We're, we're just doing normal historical research here. We're not beginning from an assumption that it really, that, that God really raised Jesus from the dead, right? Okay, so let's go through the minimal facts. The ones accepted by everybody except the, the really, really skeptical top row of New Testament scholars. And, and the first minimal fact is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. So all of these scholars in this vast auditorium accept that fact. Uh, the second minimal fact, he was buried likely in a private tomb. Um, so we don't have to buy the, the account in the Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea uh, produced his tomb and, and took the body there. But even if we don't accept that, all of, our, all of these skeptics accept that he, he was buried and, and likely in a private tomb. Minimal fact number three is that soon after, the disciples were afraid and discouraged uh, and had lost all hope. That, that their, their view of how this was all gonna unfold didn't come to pass and, and so they were, at, they were at a loss, right? Uh, the fourth minimal fact is that Jesus' tomb was found empty soon afterward. Um, this is probably the one of the 12 that would have fewer adherents among this skeptical group, um, but, but we'll talk about reasons why uh, most do accept it. Um, the fifth minimal fact is that the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So, so get that clearly. We're, we're not saying that the disciples saw Jesus. Some of those skeptics wouldn't buy that claim, but they do accept that the disciples thought they saw Jesus. Okay, you, you understand the difference there, right? I mean, I, I know guys who believe in shapeshifters and, and Bigfoot, and I don't have to believe in Bigfoot, but I do believe that they believe in Bigfoot. You see the difference there. That's, that's what the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Uh, the sixth minimal fact is that the proclamation, oh, sorry, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were transformed. They, they went from being scared, hiding, at a loss, to bold, proclaiming, teaching beyond their education, and they were willing to die for their belief that they saw the risen Jesus, okay? People don't die for uh, things that they don't feel pretty strongly about. The seventh minimal fact is that the proclamation of, specifically of the resurrection, began early right at the beginning. 
And I've already talked a little bit about that, that, that what Paul got from Peter and James within five years, if not earlier, of the death of Jesus was that what we're teaching, what we're believing, what we're proclaiming everywhere we go is that Jesus rose from the dead. Again, all the skeptics in the room, except maybe the top row, accepts this as a historical fact, just like any other historical fact. Minimal fact number eight is that this proclamation of the resurrection took place in Jerusalem, right where the events of the, of the death of Jesus took place. So it, it, it's not being proclaimed somewhere distant where there aren't eyewitnesses to the events who could call into question what is being claimed, right? Uh, minimal fact number nine is that the message of this new way, this Christian teaching, centered on the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't just a tangential or side issue to what was being told, it was the central fact. It was, it was, it was critical to the message. Just as we, we saw in the very first scripture we, we discussed. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're wasting our time here, okay? Uh, the message centered on Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, the 10th minimal fact, and again, I've already alluded to this, is that the day of worship, the primary day of worship, quickly moved from the Sabbath as it had been for, um, well, more than a millennium, to being the first day of the week. And again, that traces back to the fact that Jesus rose on the, on the Sunday. The 11th minimal fact is that James, who was one of Jesus' half-brothers, and during his life and ministry was skeptical of his claims, became a believer when he had an experience that he believed to be an interaction with the risen Jesus. He actually became the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. Uh, so this, this is another fact recognized as historical by everybody in this room, including the skeptics, needing explanation, whether it be resurrection or legend or what have you. And then the 12th minimal fact is that Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the Christians as a good Jewish um, fellow, became a Christian due to an experience that he took to be an actual appearance of the risen Jesus. His encounter on the road to Damascus was led, what led him to do a 180 in his life and become a follower of the way that he had been persecuting. So this is another historical fact recognized by all the skeptics in the room that needs explanation, okay? So uh, when Habermas presents this to his unbelieving uh, peers among New Testament scholars, he doesn't need them to buy each of the 12 facts. He'll ask them, well, okay, here's a list of 12 historical facts. Which of these do you agree to? And if they only give him six or eight or even four, that's enough for him to use to make the argument that the only explanation that accounts for all of these facts, even if it's just the four rather than the 12, is that Jesus really did rose, arise from the dead. So let's uh, talk about a couple of these other naturalistic theories that arose you know, 100, 120 years ago. One of them would be the uh, hallucination theory. So yeah, these, these disciples all thought they saw a risen Jesus, but they were just hallucinating. Um, they, they so wanted Jesus to still be alive that, that they saw something that their mind played a trick on them and, and they, they ran with it, right? There's a whole lot, of, whole lot of other problems we could talk about with the hallucination theory. It, it, it just doesn't stand up when we're talking about multiple eyewitnesses at a single time. It doesn't stand up to the, um, the sort of unity of the eyewitness accounts that these these guys um, brought forth. Um, and it, it certainly doesn't account for the fact that uh, these, these men died for their belief. You know, if, if, if you believe you uh, saw Bigfoot or a UFO, you know, because you were 
a little tipsy that night or whatever. No matter how strongly you believe that at the moment, there'll come a time later in life when you'll, you'll start to question what it was you saw. And when somebody comes to you and, and says, you know, either recant that you saw a UFO that night or we're going to put you to the sword, you say, yeah, I'm not sure what went on there. You walk away and you live. These guys um, didn't hallucinate because they died for, for their belief in the resurrection. As it turns out, um, this hallucination theory doesn't account for a number of these minimal facts, including the empty tomb uh, and including the conversion or transformation of James, the skeptic, or Paul, the, the persecutor. So just lots of reasons that nobody accepts the hallucination theory anymore. It was popular 100 years ago. No New Testament scholar would, would agree to it today. Um, there's a number of theories having to do with the empty tomb. Uh, maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb, and that's all that's going on here. Um, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe somebody other than the disciples stole the body. So all of these theories having to do with the tomb don't account, again, for a number of the other facts that all the scholars accept as historical. Um, these wrong tomb theories don't, don't account for the perceived appearances of Jesus. Actually, more importantly, perhaps, none of the disciples were converted based on finding an empty tomb, except John. John was the only disciple, if you read the accounts, who when he saw the empty tomb, the dots were connected and he said, maybe he's risen. All the others immediately defaulted to some other explanation like uh, somebody stole, where have they moved the body or, or, or something like that. So it wasn't even a sufficient, the empty tomb wasn't even a sufficient explanation to, to cause the disciples themselves to remember Jesus' promise to raise from the dead, right? Um, but, but the empty tomb theories uh, don't account for the perceived appearances, for the transformation and the willingness to die for the, for the idea of resurrection. It doesn't account for the fact that the preaching of resurrection took place right there in Jerusalem and right from the beginning. Because if they had just gone to the wrong tomb, it would have been easy for either the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities to correct their misunderstanding by taking them to the right tomb and showing them the, the dead corpse of this guy they were trying to claim had risen, right? Um, it also doesn't account for the conversion of either James or Paul. So again, nobody today, no New Testament scholar today is still promoting any of these wrong tomb theories. Um, the theory that Muslims hold to is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just fainted or swooned at the end of uh, the crucifixion. So he didn't rise from the dead, he just resuscitated, rolled the stone away, crawled to Galilee where uh, the disciples were hiding and appeared to them. Um, there's a lot of problems with that theory too. Um, if that is what had happened, the disciples would have called for a doctor, they wouldn't have started proclaiming a glorified and risen savior. Uh, but the swoon theory doesn't account for several of our minimal facts, including the perceived appearances, the transformation of the disciples, or the conversion of, of James and Paul. So again, no New Testament scholar today accepts or promotes this theory. Now when I say that, I'm not saying you won't hear some humanics humanities professor in the university throw out one of these theories, but the experts in, in, in New Testament scholarship have long buried these alternate naturalistic theories. They just avoid the topic because the only correct conclusion seems to be that Jesus really rose from the dead. Um, the legend theory, which is, again, has always been the most popular alternate theory the legend theory doesn't account for any one of these 12 historical facts that all of the skeptics accept. So again, nobody's, nobody who, who's serious and a scholar promotes the legend theory anymore, okay? The best explanation for what went on that weekend almost 2,000 years ago is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And there are a number of implications for us 
of that fact, that that is, that, that that is a historical fact just as any other uh, provable historical fact. Um, I'm going to share real quickly just three of, of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus um, for us today. And the first comes from Ephesians, 9, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And it's that the resurrection of Jesus proves the power of God at work in the world. I pray that you will begin to understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. A second implication is that when, when God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, it validated Jesus' teachings and it validated Jesus' claims to, de to deity, to being one with the Father. And for, for just one example text of that, Romans 1.4 tells us, Jesus Christ our Lord was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised him from the dead by means of the Holy Spirit. A third implication for us is that the resurrection of Jesus proves the reality of God's kingdom on earth with Jesus established as its rightful ruler. Uh, again, of a number of passages I could go to, let me just go to two. In Revelations 11:15, in a passage that was picked up by Handel and his Messiah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, another passage that's probably familiar to, to you, it says, therefore God has exalted him, Jesus Christ, above all things and given him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So those are just real quickly uh, implications that flow out of the historical fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So I've already talked about the fact that as we look at the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Resurrection was central to the lives and deaths of the, of the folks recorded there. I've also shared that the crucifixion and resurrection are the central event in all of church history, in all the history for the people of God. And I've shared that uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the central event in all of human history. And I've given you reasons to, to understand that. Now I wanna point out that it's more than that, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the central event in all of cosmic history. The whole point of the universe seems to have been that God might provide a way of salvation and relationship with humanity through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, let me share just a couple of verses Ephesians 1.4 tells us that our election in Christ, that we were, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth or before the foundation of the world. And, and on a reading today of just exactly what that means, that means that long before God formed the earth, 4.6 billion years ago, the plan of crucifixion and resurrection was in God's mind. Um, I guess if you're still hung up on the age of creation, I just said something controversial. Um, likewise, 2 Timothy 1.9 says that grace being bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus was planned before the ages began. It, seem, it seems that this verse is saying that, that even before time came into being, that's a hard one to get your mind around, before time, um, that before God created the universe, in, in God's time, now we're talking 13.65 billion years ago, the plan of salvation in Christ's death and resurrection was in place in, in the mind of the, the triune Godhead. So, so the actual physical, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all of cosmic history. If we look at the other extreme, not before time began, but after the end of this age, we have a picture in Revelation 5 of 
of the fulfillment of the kingdom. And, and the picture has all of creation, every living thing, not just humanity, but every living thing, not only angels and seraphims, but every, every created thing from the, the land and the sea and under the sea and in the heavens, praising, and who are they praising? They're praising the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory and wisdom and might. So before time began and after the end of this age, we'll, we're looking at this one event that led to the, the lives of the apostles being transformed as we've been reading in, in the Acts. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I think I wanna leave you with a challenge I've said that it's the most important event in all of human history, in all of cosmic history. But I, I think the real difference between us and the men we've been reading about in the book of Acts is that they recognized it every moment of every day. That it was the resurrection, the, the eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus that made everything different. But it's still true today in our day. We live in a world that is forever transformed by the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I think the problem is that unlike Paul and Philip and, and James and John who we're reading about, even though the truth of that historical fact is just as real as, it, as it's ever been, I don't live my life Maybe you don't live your life with that most important fact at the center of everything I do and think and say each and every minute and each and every day. So that's the challenge for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we thank you for this time in coming to grips with the reality of of what you did almost 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for it. Uh, we are awed by the idea that before you even created this universe, you had each of us in mind, that you wanted relationship with us, that you knew that we would reject that relationship, but that you had a plan in place to, to solve that problem that before you created the universe, you intended to, to let Christ die on the cross, knowing that you would step in and supernaturally raise him from the dead and promise to do the same for us one day. We just pray that uh, as we go about our business this week, that you would keep resurrection and, the, and, and your power in raising Jesus from the dead at the, at the forefront of our thoughts and our actions. Keep, keep resurrection in our minds every moment of every day that we might delight in your will for us and walk in your way to the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.